There's an amazing scene in Sarah Marcus's book, Girls to the Front, that I'd love to share with you. It's the day after Heavens to Betsy had performed a mind-blowing first gig and the band members are at a picnic. Ian Mackay of Fugazi runs up to them to shake their hands and tell them how great it was. Now I understand that at the height of Riot Girl, endorsement from a boy-fronted band, even one with Fugazi's credentials, should not be so important, but I adore this image. A picnic is such an unrock and roll setting, and in 1991, most alternative bands would melt at such praise so early in their career. And of course, Corinne Tucker of Heavens to Betsy would go on to found the subject of today's episode, Slater Kinney. But we're already five albums into their discography, so if you missed the last episode, I strongly recommend that you go back and start your journey there. And it is a journey. That's what we do at Temporary Fandoms. We take guided tours through complete discographies with a handful of fans and experts on hand to make sure you don't miss anything along the way. You can find this and all our past episodes at tempfans.com and all the other places that podcasts like to hang out. In our show notes, you can find a link to a special Spotify playlist edition of the show. Nope, still no sponsorship deal. We should probably get back to it, eh? So brace yourself for the earth-shattering final instalment of our journey through the albums of Slater Kinney. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. Um, this is episode two of Slater Kinney. If this is your first one of the season, stop. I mean, I'm not supposed to give you a call to action to stop the podcast, but stop the podcast because the previous one uh, was amazing. Uh, we had all of today's guests, plus the phenomenal uh, Sarah Marcus, who wrote the book, um, the book about the Riot Girl movement. Um, rejoining, well, me and... Nick, what? Hello? Yeah, Dick. <laughs> me joining myself and Nick today um, are, well, Sheree. Hello, Hello Sheree. Hello again. Uh, yeah, I'm not doing big intros because they're in the last episode. Um, Fliss. Hello. And Ben. Hi, good to be back. Uh, yeah, it was 10 minutes ago. Uh, ben, um, which <laughs> albums are we talking about today? Okay, so this is part two. So we're going to have uh, five albums starting with uh, one beat from 2002. And we'll actually hear Cherie giving the uh, introduction for that one. Um, that's followed by The Woods from 2005. And Fliss will be introducing that. Um, then we have a bit of a break from 2005 to 2015 when they come back after their hiatus with No Cities to Love. Cherie again introducing that. Um, and then we have the two most recent ones, which I'll be talking about. The Center Won't Hold from 2019 and their latest one from this year, Path of Wellness. Thank you very much. Um, for those listening who think, oh, God, Temporary Fandoms, what? There's a new album out, so they decide to do a podcast. We planned this months ago. We were all signed up to do this. And then suddenly, oh, there's a new album. Oh, brilliant. And then, oh, they've done their own Audible podcast about their career. Don't, <laughs> don't listen to that. Do not listen to that. I mean, Second time that's happened to us now, all right? Paul and yeah. Steve Anley doing yeah. one on the fall right after us. Oh, yeah. At least, yeah. At least we got him on. Like two yeah. weeks before he went it's to true. do his own thing. He's obviously I, trying to I find out how like it's done. He was influenced by you guys, definitely. I'd like to, I'd like to think that. <laughs> it's not true, but thank you. Um, anyway, we are going to get cracking. Um, and the next voice you hear is going to be Cherie um, after this. When 
describing the sound of one beat to the Washington Post, Brownstein said, I think of Dig Me Out and the Hot Rock as the two ends of the spectrum, and it's kind of been combined on this record. And then we also pushed ourselves beyond that. The follow-up to their acclaimed All Hands on the Bad One, One Beat is Slater Kinney's sixth studio album, and it does indeed push further than their other records to date, with some of their weightiest and most explicitly political tracks. Speaking to the Broadwood Palm Beach New Times, they explained how they wanted the record to be the voice in the silence following the terrorist attacks in the US on September the 11th, 2001. But while the lyrics and subject matter might have pushed them towards their most polemic, they stayed in the safe hands of longtime collaborator John Gibbonson when it came to recording, this time at Jackpot Studio in Portland, Oregon. Standout number Far Away questions the all-or-nothing patriotism sweeping the US, explicitly referencing the terrorist attacks, and contains criticism of American president at the time, George W. Bush, as Tucker belts about the president hiding while working men rush in and give their lives. She explained to the Stanford Daily that it wasn't really a conscious decision to write about the attacks, but there was just such an overwhelming presence in our minds as we were really trying to write the songs that we felt we really needed to deal with it and that we really needed to write about it. But it isn't all hefty war odes. There are, there's glam greatness in bouncy organ-led love anthem O oh, and one of my particular faves, and Hollywood ending throws out a dizzying dance around the concept of celebrity and the mainstream female body image. A lot of the tracks are also heavily influenced by the band members' own inward-facing battles. Tucker had recently given birth to her son, who was born nine weeks premature. As she shared with Rolling Stone, Marshall is all over one beat. The last year was definitely a difficult time for me, as he was in the hospital for a while. It was the hardest thing that I've ever lived through, that fear and anxiety, and I think I was able to let go into the music. Sympathy then is a prayer for the life of Tucker's premature-born child. As she belts, there is no righteousness in your darkest moment. We're all equal in the face of what we're most afraid. I loved a particularly cutting review in NME where uh, Victoria Siegel stated that few bands could explore motherhood and terrorism without making you want to shoot them. But Corin Tucker's electric shock voice and the adrenaline-fueled guitars make them essential pop topics. One beat then one blistering record and one mighty band. Three years after One Beat, a new record label, Sub Pop, and maybe a bit more band cancelling, they are back with The Woods and what an album. This album is a step away from most of what you've just been listening to. Of course, it's Corinne, Carrie and Janet, and you know that from the tone, the style and the message, but it's certainly so much heavier, denser, distorted, it's confident, and it's an absolutely storming album, in my opinion. They ditched John Goodmanson, and they headed over to Dave Friedman's gaff, who made his name from Flaming Lips and Mercury Rev with massive live drum sounds. I think you can hear that change right away from the opening track, The Fox. It's a storming opener, with Corin's voice towering over the already huge drum and guitar sounds. To me, it sounds like they just really had fun expressing themselves musically and experimented with an ode to classic rock. Every song thrashes around you. Even the softer of songs, Modern Girl, hits you with pounding drums at the end, piercing harmonica from vice and waves of distortion. It's safe to say there is a ton of rocking out. They go off, they come back, they go off again. And every time I listen to this album, I am still amazed by it sonically. And you can never second guess where the track is heading. 
The last two tracks on the record, Let's Call It Love and Nightlight, were actually played as one cut. And if you think that Let's Call It Love stands at an 11 minute number on its own, it kind of sets the tone, even though it's at the end, of how the album is. Um, it kicks off with glorious hooks, wailing by Corinne, who, might I say, is on top of her game on this record. Risha, her voice leaves you breathless. Entertain was one of the two singles released from the record and is the song I really wish I had written. Pounding drums, which was so inspiring as a drummer. Direct vocals, it's hitting, it's also kind of danceable. And as the lyrics explain, if you're here because you want to be entertained, please go away. Perhaps an explanation of their feelings whilst making this pretty drastic change to their sound, I'd say. This album has real depth. It's not for the faint of heart, but our Sleater Kinney are in here, but with so much more intense jewels and epping rocking than you'd be expecting. Their finest album, in my opinion, and I never stop being blown away. After announcing their hiatus following the woods in 2006, there would be over a decade to wait before even a sniff of Sleater Kinney's musical return. Their statement, shared via Sub Pop, the only record that they released with the group, but who would stand with them in the coming years, thanked the fans and played their final show as a four in 2006 at Lollapalooza in Chicago. Of course, it's hardly like they went out on a whimper. For many fans and for Brownstein herself, their greatest album was their last one, The Woods. And it's not like they're reforming out of boredom since the 2005 release of The Woods. The separate members of Sleater Kinney have been occupied with tons of solo ventures. Tucker had released two albums with the Corin Tucker Band, while Brownstein and Vice had formed Wild Flag. Oh, what a band! Not to mention Brownstein's comedy series Portlandia and Weiss's work with bands such as Quasi and Stephen Malcolmus and the Jicks. But then a decade later, mega fans everywhere were thrilled to hear that Sub Pop were celebrating with a remixed box set of all their beloved back catalogue on coloured vinyl, no less. Start Together then came to the surprise of pretty much everyone apart from Sub Pop, who might have leaked the single a few days earlier, with, tucked in amongst the rest of the records, a reunion launching, no label, seven inch single, Bury Our Friends. It blissfully combined the huge crunching riffs of the woods, but with a little more angst of the Dig Me Out era. And despite its macabre title, the aliveness of the band again is palpable. These days, most band reunions take place because of the huge financial rewards available and occasionally record company pressure. But for Salita Kinney, this is the sound of necessity, of a beating heart of a band that never really went away. Of course, there's always the fear of the record and how it will perform alongside its staggering back catalogue, especially after a decade-long hiatus. But as Kitty Empire mused in The Observer, it was pretty much the most perfect comeback of recent years. The record came together then in the form of 2015 release, No Cities to Love, recorded secretly at tiny telephone studios in San Francisco, presumably so none of their friends or regular creative collaborators would know what they were up to in Portland. Opener price tag is a thunderous rant against consumerism with an opening riff that just reeks with the promise of something huge, literally like queuing in each member like the perfect orchestra with the fuzz-lined riff, the scattering drum beats and then those huge peak Townsend windmills that we'd miss so much. 
These songs are taught and they're made to sing along, as Surface Envy insists, we win, we lose, only together do we break the rules, a brazen celebration of what it means for Sleater Kinney to be back. A standout record alone, but No Cities to Love also artfully sits in with their catalogue so naturally. One of the singles of the record, A New Wave, could read to some as the perfect pop anthem and ticket to timeless radio airplay for a long-standing love, but for me it oozes with decade-spanning friendship and the power of music of my own forays into writing choruses of indie tracks of my best friend and screaming them proudly on stage together. As Tucker and Brownstein sing in unison on the chorus, no outline will ever hold us. It's not a new wave, it's just you and me. And it always was. It was such a wonderful, unexpected gift for Slater Kinney fans when the band came off their long hiatus with the release of No Cities to Love. And it was another gift when they returned to touring, captured on the excellent 2017 concert album Live in Paris. But of course, that just left fans clamoring for the band's next chapter. Dribs and drabs of news emerged in 2018. Carrie said that they were back in the studio, but they were taking things slow. Then, in January 2019, they revealed on Instagram that they were working on an album with none other than Annie Clark, a.k.a. St. Vincent. The new album would be called The Center Won't Hold, and excitement built as the lead single, Hurry On Home, was released in May 2019. But as fans waited for the official release of the album later that summer, they got a body blow. In July, just a month before the album dropped, Janet Weiss, Slater Kinney's incredible drummer, who was a vital element of their sound ever since Dig Me Out in 1997, announced she was leaving the band and would not be joining the Center Won't Hold tour. Janet's departure couldn't help but color the reception of the Center Won't Hold. Fans looked for clues in the album for what could have precipitated the split. Was St. Vincent somehow the Yoko Ono of the group? Did the fact that Annie and Carrie reportedly were dating for a while have anything to do with it? The truth was, as Laura Snapes reported in a long profile of the band for The Guardian in July 2019, it was actually Janet who lobbied for having St. Vincent produce the album after they had tried out a few producers. But it seems that Janet grew disenchanted with the band as the recording of The Center Won't Hold went on. It's understandable how she could have felt a bit on the outside of the core duo of Corin and Carrie. Her contributions on the album are certainly not as front and center as they were on previous albums, as the synthy electronic textures introduced by St. Vincent predominate throughout. Now, with some hindsight, it's easier to appreciate The Center Won't Hold without all of the drama that surrounded its release. There's much to like, starting with the opening title track, with a menacing sound reminiscent of the best of Nick Cave and PJ Harvey, culminating in a fantastic punk clatter. And that leads right into Hurry On Home, where Carrie's voice sounds savage, powered by an industrial sound that seems to nod to Nine Inch Nails. Can I Go On weds great catchy riffs with lyrics that speak to our current condition. Everyone I know is tired, but everyone I know is wired. To machines, it's obscene. I'll just scream till I don't hurt no more. But there are more contemplative moments, especially from Corin who has said she was experiencing some depression during the recording. It ends with a stark ballad, Broken, which was originally inspired by Rihanna's song, Stay, but evolved into a pointed commentary 
about the Me Too movement, particularly the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford in the Senate hearing for Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination. Once again, Slater Kinney's music fuses the personal and the political into one powerful statement. Finally, we come to Slater Kinney's latest album, Path of Wellness. Without the presence of Janet Weiss, this is very much the Corin and Carrie show now, as the two of them decided to self-produce the album, something they hadn't done since their early days. It made sense, considering that this album came together in the midst of the COVID pandemic, when, as Corin and Carrie discuss on their new Audible original, One More Hour, they ended up forming their own pandemic bubble in Portland. As they crafted the songs together, they decided on what studio musicians would best supplement their sound. Drums are handled on a couple of tracks by Angie Boylan, who took over for Janet in the touring ensemble after The Center Won't Hold. And uh, drums on a few other tracks are by Brian Koch and on the rest by Vince LaRocchi. Galen Clark contributes clavinet and electric piano continuing the keyboard accompaniment that the band tried out on the center one hold, but with a texture that sounds more organic than St. Vincent's synthesizer beds. And there's even a bassist on the album, Bill Athens, including bass at long last, uh, shows that Slater Kenny is truly moving forward and not getting too hung up on their old band habits. They're definitely still willing to try new things while also paying homage to the rock pantheon and their place in that pantheon. High in the Grass, for instance, kicks off with the heavy sounds they've been working with since the woods, and then swerves into a lazy, folky vibe before returning to a riftastic chorus from Corin. Worry With You, the first single from the album, is similarly hook-laden, with Carrie expounding on the pleasures of getting lost and taking wrong turns with someone who appreciates the journey and all the mishaps along the way. Carrie gets a bit moodier on Method, in which she admits, I'm singing about love and it sounds like hate. Like so much of Slater Kenny's catalog, no matter how catchy the melodies, heartbreak and regret lurk in the lyrics, with Carrie ruefully singing, I'm late to the party, I'm late to the game, I'm late to your heart. They're not afraid to show that they're still experimenting, trying on new sounds, like the surprisingly proggy Tomorrow's Graves. Not all of these sonic experiments are successful, but it's exhilarating to hear Corn and Carrie still stretching out in new directions after all these years. It's been a joy getting lost with them. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. You have been listening to Ben, Cherie, and Fliss talk through the latter half of the career of Slater Kinney. I have to keep making sure I pronounce that correctly. I have to say, you do a fantastic job of saying Slater Kinney every time through the last episode, because there's no way I'd have managed that. Well, as as I said to you, I'm a Wolverhampton lad, so I just thought Slade, Slade, Slade. Slater Kinney. uh, Slater Kinney. Uh (laughs) Now I want Slater Slater Kinney's version of, you know, Mama, we're all crazy now, and everything comes full circle. Um, Still with Nick and myself are Sharia Moore. Hello. Let's get some. Hello. And Ben Zimmer. Hi there. Right. So um, we are now post-millennium, um, importantly, post-9-11. And we're moving into, I think I just said 2002s 
Uh, one beat. Yes, we are. Crap. <laughs> Every t- while we were planning this, I kept thinking, one beat. Now I go, oh, one vision. That was a Queen song. Don't say one vision. Say one beat. And now I've just said it. Um, okay, first of all, producer check. Who are they with? <laughs> uh, well, they are back with John Goodmanson uh, for this one again. Um, so yeah, as you said, this, this is post 9-11 and that's significant. Um, for the first part, you know, we got through the nineties to 2000 when, um, when all hands on the bad one came out, um, 2000 was the year also that, uh, Greil Marcus, the famous rock critic, um, said that Slater Kenny was, you know, America's greatest rock band in time magazine. And a lot of people reading Time Magazine were wondering, who, who's Slater Kinney? Never heard of them. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they were this critical darling, uh, even with the help of Grail Marcus, Robert Criscow, these critics who loved them. You know, they, they, never, they never sold that many albums. It didn't really sort of bump them up in the sales. Um, you know, perhaps they, they weren't really looking for that, but, you know, they were just like a, a working band and, you know, going out on tour. But they decided to take most of 2001 off. At this point, um, Corin is now married uh, to Lance Bangs, a filmmaker. They have their first Sorry, child. that is the most American name I have ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. Lance Bangs. Brilliant. Right. <laughs> no relation to Lester Bangs, I'm pretty sure. But um, so uh, they have their first child. And I mean, speaking of names, love, love their son's name is Marshall Tucker Bangs. Um, so, so, um, so, uh, Corin's at home. Um, Carrie actually had been living in, uh, Olympia, Washington. She moves down to Portland, uh, where, um, Corin and Janet were already living. And this is, you know, if you're looking for the seeds of Portlandia, it's when, when Carrie moves to Portland. Um, so they get back together after a, a bit of a break. And, um, these new songs are very much reflecting what life was like in the U.S., um, after 9-11. And so they get more political now. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of kind of outrage at this, you know, the Bush-Cheney era. And, um, you know, you get a song like Far Away, where Corin's basically singing about what it's like, as she says, to watch the world explode in flames. You know, basically 9-11 happens while she's nursing her child. Um, and, um, you know, but we get a whole kind of range of different styles of music on this, too. Um, in fact, a kind of a taste of things to come with uh, Light Rail Coyote, which is very kind of Led Zeppelin-ish. And, you know, we're, you know we're, we'll be getting into sort of a heavier sound from them in the future. But, yeah, it's really interesting just how they, they get more political, not sort of in-your-face political, although it's interesting, you know, one, one song is called Combat Rock, you know, basically, you know, drawing that parallel to The Clash. Um, but you get, you get a song like, um, you know, Combat Rock, where you know, they're, they're really kind of uh, making a political statement at a time when it was kind of difficult in the U.S. to, um, to express criticism after 9-11. And so, you know, they, they have this line, since when is skepticism un-American? I mean, you know, it was, it was a, a time when it was actually sort of difficult to make that kind of political statement. And so, um, so they're, they're saying all this. But again, like for them, you know, as we said before, the political is personal, the personal is political. And the, the song that uh, I think really kind of brings us home is The Last One, Sympathy. And again, it's, it's really kind of like Corin talking about the birth of her son, which, you know, and which was this harrowing experience because it was a premature birth. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just get this kind of 
raw emotion of their feelings at the time, this kind of snapshot of this moment in uh, 2001. Um, just as a quick aside, was this round about the time that it's like, was it the Dixie Chicks spoke out and then there was such a backlash, you know, how dare you speak out about the Bush tenure or did that come a bit later? Uh, yeah, that would have been around this time. Um, I, I actually, I think, um, uh, for, for that, that was actually a little, little later, 2003, but when, with the invasion of Iraq. So, um, so yeah, I mean, for what the, what Slater Kenny was talking about on this album, it's, it's even preceding all of that. It's sort of very, very early on kind of questioning exactly what was happening with the country after 9-11. Yeah. I think you're definitely right. There's, there's, you can hear the twofold of, I guess, new parenthood and 9-11 and anger and politics all embroiled into this one album mm-hmm. and, not, and, and a track about a light railroad in, in Portland. I mean, all embroiled together and none of it jars. I mean, I think some of the previous albums maybe for me felt like a collection of amazing songs that didn't quite go together as an album. I think this is an album and they're back in it as a start to finish Perfect. Um, so Cherie, um, you, you and Fliss, you, you, you knew them by now. You know, this wasn't something that you'd come back to. So this would be, I'm guessing, when it came out, what did you, you hunt it down? Did you pick it up, take it home, listen to it and go, or, did, or was it a Napster job? Cause this was about yeah, it might have been. Job. I'm trying to think, because I don't think I had it on CD. Um, no, I, no, I'm not sure. But yeah, I do remember... I think Fliss and I probably bonded on this album, one of the first ones that we bonded on as a kind of... Yeah, we, we did mixtapes to each other with yeah. like Riot Girl songs on and um, when this cut came out, I definitely was into the old Napster. Yeah. Um, and we switch around you know yeah tracks because i can definitely hear like oh being a big informer for us in terms of like the kind of stop start drums the i just oh carrie's vocals just get better and better for me like the more kind of mispronounced and kind of you know toppling over the sounds hitting completely different melodies to everything else that's going on and the really kind of sharp delivery is just the best for me um I read she she had um, a comment in the Washington Post talking about this record and how she thought it was a sort of dig me out versus the hot rock um they were kind of the two end spectrums of this record and then she, they've kind of pushed into that central vein between the two um I, I think for me it probably just feels like the way they're going and as Ben said with the zep abounding um, and looming in the distance for the woods. But um, I loved, similarly to you, you and I thought, I just think they're great storytellers and they're great at capturing, you know, a kind of zeitgeist moment and also, you know, making things that maybe, I said this before, but uncomfortable, you know, essential listening and, and making people think about that. So obviously the, the aftermath of 9-11, but also the stuff that maybe other artists aren't speaking about in terms of premature birth and motherhood. And there's that great, I reference it in the intro, Victoria Siegel from NME talking about how, if you read that on the back of something that it was about like terrorism and motherhood, you wouldn't really want to listen to that <laughs> album, but it's just, they, they just deliver with a plum. It's, it's everything. Um, yeah. Once again, really what an album. I, I think it's also the fact that it wasn't, it's not, there's one song about no. 9-11 uh, I think like uh, the Decemberists, they managed to do one song about going to war in Afghanistan, and, but that was the one on the album that stood out. 
this is an album that is everything's embroiled together and they hope they're, they're putting, putting on the t-shirt, t-shirt moment, they're standing, standing up, up. Yep. at, at a time, time where it would, would have been incredibly difficult, difficult to be uh, a celebrity, a musician, an artist, an artist of some sort in America to go, um, yeah, I'm, I'm patriotic and all that, but can we have a conversation? Um, where was I going to go? I was going to go. I was going to go to Fliss. Yeah, um, I took. I'm the- not going to ask about Napster because you know that, that, that was that was a time we all did the Napster. Um. <laughs> I took this album actually. Um, I really remember taking this record to my drum teacher at the time. So I'd only been doing drums for not that long, but I was about to join forces with Cherie. Um, and I took this and I was like, this, you know, the opening track, the drums start it and I was like oh I just want to play drums like that that are all over the toms and just kind of making their own melody and I so in my drum lessons I would take a song and then he would also have a song and we'd play along to those so I'd have Sleeta Kinney he had Slipknot um so it's very (laughs) jarring (laughs) and uh, he fell in love with the album on a drum level as well and he understood where I wanted to go so it was a nice moment we had together with this album. Um, I didn't, you know, learn it off by heart drumming-wise, but I just got the feel of it. And, yeah, like the cowbell on Sympathy. Um, I'm a big, if you know my drumming, whoever is listening, um, yeah, me and the cowbell have a good relationship. And it's tracks like Sympathy, you know, started that. Um, and it's also, yeah, just fantastically emotionally driven album. Um that sticks with you, um, yeah. And you can feel that you can tell they're moving. They're moving sonically to the next chapter. This is the start, and then yeah, then the woods. And I think and Cherie Cherie mentioned it as did Ben, but also in the last episode, uh, Sarah talked about how they were they were embracing the no. I want to be a musical, your music art icon. Yeah, I, they, they weren't shying away from this, mm. and actually embracing classic classic rock sounds that are starting to come through um was was a great move i mean it also it's not sort of a yeah why should the why should the boys have this we still have have this um we've mentioned the word several times um so let's move on to this um in a previous episode of this podcast because obviously regular listeners have listened to everything you haven't just come for this one but we talked about uh the band number girl uh japanese post uh, hardcore band Number Girl, and I may have had a few comments about how some producers um, like to turn up and turn everything up to 11. Uh, Dave Friedman, let's get there. Um, him of the Flaming Lips, uh, he turned up and actually made some of the best Number Girl albums. He destroyed some band sounds. Uh, clap your hands and say, yeah, we're not ready for everything turned up to 11. Um, in the previous episode, I said that Dig Me Out was one of my two favourite albums by Slater Kinney. Um, this album's fucking fantastic. It's absolutely fucking fantastic. Hell uh, yes. I made so many notes. Uh, I wrote, fuck me, this is insanely good. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to make a classic rock sound. They smashed it out of the park. Um, I'd never heard this before last week. Wow. And I've listened to it so many times. And also, um, <laughs> regular listeners will know that I don't like long 12-minute uh, wanky guitar improv guitar wank jams. I do now. <laughs> do when Brownstein does them, yeah. 
Brilliant. Just, I mean, the, this album was so good and so heavy and so big sound coming in. There's bit, there was bits of The Who, Hendrix, Queens of the Stone Age. I kept picking up this sort of uh, jaunty along guitar. Um, I, if you had played this to me after um, Hot Rock, I would not have believed it was the same band necessarily. I'd have thought, oh, they've got other people in. Like they've been, it's, oh, it's the people from Hot Rock who have now got a new band because the sound is so different. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm doing what I did last episode. This is brilliant. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, you but, know, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting because, you know, it, it seems like this great sea change. I mean, there, there were hints of this. I mean, we mentioned like Light Rail Coyote or earlier Male Model where they're going for a heavier sound. But what really apparently did it uh, for them in terms of moving in this direction was opening for Pearl Jam. They, they, they start, you know, that was a different audience. You know, they, they, they were just like, well, why don't, you know, why don't we try something that's sort of more arena rock, basically. And, um, you know, so that, that's the point where they're like, you know, let's bring in Dave Friedman, who can match this sound. They're also on a new label now, Sub Pop. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's this really interesting kind of transformation where they're all they're all together on board with this idea. We're just going to embrace this sound, and and um, that opener, the Fox. Wow, I mean, just like take no prisoners. It's just right away you're in it. There's no turning back, and um, you know all sorts of interesting choices they're making. I'm sure that Dave Friedman was kind of like prodding them on in this direction, but like. What's mine is yours. There's that weird breakdown in the middle. It's like, what the hell's going on? You know, it's like they're, they're, um, so there are all these kind of noisy explorations. Obviously, you know, you mentioned like the 11 minute, let's call it love that comes later. But I also like how they're able to step back from that. It's not all just this assault. And in fact, you know, um, you know, some of Carrie's finest songwriting comes through on this. So we get uh, Jumpers, which was inspired by this article she had read about people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And then Modern Girl, definitely one of my favorites of hers. And yeah. of course, it gives her the title for her memoirs, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. And that's just, it's kind of a, you know, we've had this kind of whole assault going on. And then just a, that step back where it's just this great melody and great lyrics. I just, you know, that's just definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, um, I, I, I was reading, I read some review of it and it was going about, was it how Modern Girl reminded the, the reviewer of an Elliot Smith song? That then sort of kicks into gear, you know. There's, there's a melody, yeah. there's a pop melody, there's a sensitive, yeah. well-built pop, and but then it just goes off off on a tangent. Um, Nick, hello. Just because you're responding to this one and you're nodding your head appreciately, <laughs> I'm coming to you. Well, I, yeah, I know you have opinions. I just ticked off all my notes here. Everyone said everything. Uh, I mean, mainly the the main thing I wanted to say about this is how much I love Modern Girl. I think it's a great song, um, and that's that's the main thing I have to say on this album. It's amazing well, when I they play did, that live yeah. as well. Um, yeah. So me, me and Cherie saw them twice on this tour, I think. Okay. Um, well, I, and, I was wondering. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Tell, tell, tell that story. It's probably better. Well, no, <laughs> just that like seeing them play these songs live was oh, like a, it was a wall of sound, but mm. obviously, uh, and then Janet playing the harmonica while strumming mm. on Modern Girl, just right. Hearing that song live is just an emotional thing, really, really gets you. Well, what I wondered, though, with them sort of, uh, I mean, there wasn't another album for 10 years after this. Was there a sort of sense that this was possibly the end of the road or was that not 
on the horizon at all for us. There was a weird um, article where I can't remember where I saw this, but Corinne says something about they felt like they just made one really great song, which was Entertain, and they were like excited about that, Um, which Mm -hmm. feels mad considering the rest of the record that is housed around that. Um, But for me, I feel like this is just the record they were building up to. Like everything in it is just, you know, that's 10 years in the making and that is such a mammoth achievement. I I wrote, you know, a feminist rewrite of classic rock, which I'm fucking here for. Like I love, (laughs) I love classic rock. Like I write regularly for Guitar World and the more I can shoehorn, you know, women making classic rock, the better really. Um, I loved the lyrics in Entertain where she talks about um, you come around looking 1984, you're such a bore 1984, which is essentially a more, uh, you know, um, stylistic way of saying fuck Interpol. Um, (laughs) So hats off to that. Um, You and you were talking about Keith Moon and The Who and um, and I think Ben said about Fridman, like, I wonder what he was direct, how he was directing them. And again, I saw a great quote that he'd said to Janet to play like she was Keith Moon, but under a blanket. And you, and you can just like, you can feel her like bow down to the toms and like get more primal just from that direction. But it's such a weird, like surreal thing to be chatting about in the studio. So I love that. I think, I think that's it. I think, I mean, I've had some issues, like I said, with Friedman in the past, but it was on the previous pod when I realized that, and, and, and with this one, that sometimes he seems to turn up and go, there's an essence of you that you're not doing yet. You're building to this essence. And with Number Girl, they, they went bigger sound, but they also went more Japanese and they brought other things in. And the latter two albums were definitely this them, but a, but a, a them they hadn't got out yet. And like what you were saying about pretending it's you, but under, Keith Moon, but under a blanket. But it's, it's not saying, <laughs> I'm going to take your sound and re-edit it. He's saying, this is, it, this is you, just do this thing. And um, yeah, I think what they got out of this, I think was amazing. And it was sort of annoyed they didn't have a follow-up. Um, within a couple of years. It's a um, big wait. I think that's it. And Ben, um, I think we talked about this on the Ola Tango one, but I think it's worth revisiting. Um, The music press in the US compared to the music press in the the UK. Uh, The UK tends to go, oh, new band. Right, you don't have any time. Bands don't have any time to evolve. They might have an album, second album, that's it. You're either famous or you're never, or, or you're shoved to the side as far as the NME is concerned, et cetera. Whereas in America with bands like Yola Tango, Slater Kinney, Spoon, what have you, you seem to be allowed, you're allowed 10 years of doing college rock circuits and doing <laughs> these things without being cast aside. It's not like, oh, you haven't become successful yet. You're never going to be successful. It's, oh, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Is is the American music press more forgiving? Is it a size thing? Is it just a different culture? I don't know if it's the press necessarily that's driving that. Um, in the in the last installment, Sarah was talking about the importance of labels, and uh, these indie labels, I think, did a lot to just basically let bands be bands in the '90s and the aughts. And so, with Yola Tango, it was Matador for the most part. Um, Slater Kenny almost ended up on Matador, but instead, you know, they were on Kill Rock Stars and by this point, Sub Pop. And these are labels that I think um, just, you know, let the artists call the shots. And um, a band like Slater Kenny could basically do whatever they wanted to do. If they wanted to take time off, they would take time off. There, there was no like, you got to get the next single out. You got to get the next album out. It's got to have this performance on the charts. Um, and because they never had that pressure that, you know, allowed them to 
build their career in the way that they wanted to. And they needed a break after this album. I mean, we were talking about the, uh, the, their touring, like in Europe. Um, uh, Two years they toured? Yeah, it was into 2006, they, they were touring. And Carrie was a mess at this point. Again, she gets into this in her memoir in, in, in quite a lot of detail. She was having panic attacks and allergic reactions. She got the shingles, which is no fun at all. And then there was just uh, one gig in Brussels where she just kind of lost it. She had a breakdown, started like punching herself in the face. It was just, you know, again, the way she describes this in the memoir is really, you know, you could just, she was going through so much. And she she says, in a matter of minutes, Slater Kinney was gone. I had knocked its lights out, TKO. Like, you know, that, that was it for Slater Kinney for a while. I mean, they, they finished up the tour. They said, we're going to go on a hiatus. Uh, the fans did not know what that meant. How long could a hiatus possibly last? Uh, we don't know. I, you know, at the time it was it was a mystery. Uh, we all kept waiting and waiting. And in the meantime, they just did their own thing. They, you know, they 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 were never just taking time off entirely because they all had their own uh, projects. And this is when Carrie starts um, her acting career. This is the beginning of Portlandia, her show with Fred Armisen, and she gets fame completely independent of her career in Slater Kinney that way. Um, Corin is focusing on her, her family life. Now she has a second child and um, she also, you know, she's got her own band, the Corin Tucker band, and she does a couple of albums with that. Um, you know, so Carrie's doing Portlandia. She also, she and Janet end up being in this super group wild flag uh, with uh, Mary Timoney and Rebecca Cole. Janet, Janet has always been in a zillion different bands at once somehow. So even though Slater Kenny is not playing at this point, she's with Quasi uh, and uh, Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks. And um, so, yeah, I mean, all of that is happening um, for almost 10 years, basically. I mean, uh, until until we get word that there's actually a new album happening after a lot of fans had maybe possibly given up on there ever being another Slater Kenny album. On that, I'm going to jump straight to Cherie, because in your introduction, you talked about how they sort of snuck it out. Yeah. Seven inch, was that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it was in um, their box set that I have downstairs, a mighty box set of all of the remastered records. And so Sub Pop makes this, you know, great decision for all the mega fans. Again, name dropped to McCluskey when we were talking about the McCluskism and how it's like this huge collection and it's a proper collectible item. So all their fans are obviously gushing at the idea of having this remastered record version of the albums and then within that box set snuck in is a little no label seven inch of bury our friends uh with a date on the side and that is the the next see, phase of sleet guinea see that's fucking great it's so good it, it, what it, a comeback this sort of none of this sort of oh there's a youtube sneak preview no 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 here's your box there's a seven inch in it. And okay, a lot of people would have heard about it from reading something or somebody would have said something on the internet or whatnot. But a lot of people would have opened that box and gone, huh, what's this? <laughs> Very um, exciting. It is interesting. I'm, I'm glad that Sub Pop released that because before uh, I was going to say that if you said, listen to all the albums and say which one was the Sub Pop one, you'd know. You'd, you'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's the Sub Pop one. Um, they, I was aware of them ish. I knew them by this point. Um, I was about three seasons into Portlandia before I realized that she and she were the same she. 
Um, but it, it was when it was when um, ah brain cities no, cities of love came out that and it got so much press and so much. I went, oh, this is Slater Kinney. And I had a conversation with someone who I'm not going to name check because he occasionally listens to this pod a few years ago. And he was saying, I don't know, apart from PJ Harvey, there are already many women who can rock, right? I mean, maybe Sleater Kinney? Wow. And I, and I tried to name check a few and we, the, the conversation just sort of died there. And then when they came back, I was like, yeah, they really can. And also I've discovered that Carrie is exactly two days younger than me. So in my head, I was like, I can do that as well. I'm, <laughs> I'm not too old. <laughs> But um, I, want, I want to go to, to to Fliss on this one as well. I mean, a lot of a lot of bands who come back. Let's let's say some of the male ones. There's, it's almost oh god, are they going to come back and try and be rockers still? Because it's going to look awful. I mean, I remember watching Primal Scream and thinking, take the leather trousers off, mate. You're 58. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, for you, do they come back stronger? Do they come back more mature? Does, is, is there a sound difference? Do they come back as a different band or the same band? I think the heart of Sleater Kinney still remains in this album, definitely. I would say for the hardcore fans from the past, we were just so excited they were back. But also it was very obvious from the get-go that they had so many more fans through Carrie becoming, you know, in the you know on tv uh, an actor um and all sorts like for example when me and sheree saw them for the woods tour we went to a little venue in oxford which holds maybe 250 people when we saw them for no cities to love it was at the roundhouse like the change was dramatic um but still glorious. I didn't care about that. Let, let's have more people hear them. That's amazing. Like, not precious. Um, and, yeah, I feel like it does have – it still is Sleater Kinney to me. I don't feel that there is loads of change in there. I mean, it's it's in the moment. Um, it's poppy. It's probably more accessible, maybe, but um, – yeah, I was totally happy. It's yeah, I mean, very I, happy with that. I remember when it came out, and we'd been my wife and I've been watching Portlandia for a good few years, and um, it came out, and they were on, I think Stephen Col Stephen Colbert show maybe, and I was like, oh look, 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 look this is this is Lee it's, you know, it's, it's Carrie from Portlandia, and my wife was blown away by the by the uh, Pete Townsend guitar styling's, the big kicks. Yeah, yeah, it's the fact that you know, it's like a woman in her 40s is coming back and going, no, 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 I'm still rocking. And I'm rocking like I did when, when we left. God, I never um, thought about the age thing, ever. Uh, Maybe because yeah, I'm in a band full of 60-year-olds, but I never... <laughs> <laughs> I just never thought that was an, a, a thing that people would be suspicious of, that she they were older. I just thought... I, I think I've seen so many male bands come back. Yeah, no, and try, I get, and try and re recapture it, you know, mm. and it's just oh man. But it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a nostalgia thing, was it? It they've moved no, on. No. Um, they're still grounded to what they believe in, and they're talking about the same things and really important issues. But they're not so much. It wasn't a nostalgia act. They, I think, I think that's the key. You look at they maybe like when the Pix, when Pixies came back. Yeah, they released a couple of singles, but you know. Every, Pixies were touring because everybody wanted to go and see hear Debaser. 
Um, whereas now it was everybody wanted to hear the new album. Sure. Yeah, that- I was just going to say, I think that, that one of the differences there as well is like p- people want to go and see the Pixies, but they also want to see Kim Deal in the Pixies because she sings like 50% of the lyrics, right? So um, that stat's probably wrong. Sorry, Pixies fans. Uh, but with with the Slater Kinney, it's the same lineup. So there's, there's yeah. something in there, and we'll talk about this in albums to come, that is exactly where they left off. And I think the other thing is that for a lot of us who were fans before, um, and maybe some people came into their music sideways, is that we were able to gorge on things like, as Ben mentioned, Wild Flag, which, you know, Fliss and I adored and we were kind of just chomping at trying to get some of their sounds and their thoughts again in that band. But it, fun, you know, it didn't have that layer of Corin. And for me, there will always be that magic between the two of them. So to come back with a record like this, um, I, th- I believe Fred Armisen said, uh, you know, what's the question about like whether Sleater Kinney should make a new album is like whether the world needs food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently Fred was uh, instrumental in, in they getting were watching them to, it, right? Together to or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's interesting. Yeah, it's it's so they decided, OK, let's do it. But they did see these other bands that were making comebacks like Pixies or whatever. And they, they saw, you know, a lot of these bands, again, it's just sort of cashing in on uh, their, their fans from the olden days, from the nineties or whatever. And they never wanted to be that band. You know, they, they were always like, no, we're not going to just do our old hits. Um, you know, we're, this is going to be new music. That's about what we're going through right now. And so while it's true, yeah. Picking up right where they left off 10 years before, at the same time, I mean, this is, it's, 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 they have a mature outlook on things. Um, they're, again, they're looking back in, you know, the, kind of with wisdom on their past. There are all these sort of great lines that you can pick out when you listen to it, where they're really talking about themselves, really, but, and what they've gone through. So like Corin on uh, uh, Surface Envy, which she's talked about that band as the moment, the moment we became a band again, that's what the song is about. And so you hear we win, we lose, only together do we break the rules. Um, you get, you know, uh, Bury Our Friends, you know, that great uh, uh, single that we were talking about, we're wild and weary, but we won't give in. Um, and then all the way to the end with Fade, you know, if we are truly dancing our swan song, darling, shake it like never before. You know, they're just going to have fun, do what they've always been doing, um, but, you know, they're not going to cater to people's expectations like oh just play your songs from the 90s it's like no you're gonna you're gonna grow with us as as we you know move through this stage of our career also if they have just come back done a comeback tour and played their old songs you probably wouldn't have begrudged them that no but it's one of the things that's a mark of a, a great band where they can come back with a with a record and mostly just play those songs the new material and you wouldn't think you'd been shortchanged at the gig yeah, sure. totally, totally. Um, and it's the fact that, I, it, they, yes, it's still it's still Slater Kinney, but it does sound like a slightly, yeah, they, they, they didn't come back doing exactly the same album as when they left off. Um, other bands who have say, had that same longevity, I'm going to go, it was mentioned in the last episode, I think by Sarah, Dinosaur Jr., there was obviously an, uh, there was obviously an inflat, influence on some of Slater Kinney's early sound. Jay Maskis, I imagine, is just put in a cupboard and he's just doing his guitar solo, and every three years they open the cupboard, and he's still doing his guitar solo. And then they they release they record a new album, and they put him back in the cupboard. He it's never changed. Uh, 
ever. I mean, it's still exactly the same. Whereas with Slater Kinney, they came back the same but different, you know? Mm-hmm. A new wave. Here we go. Um, so if they came back strong um, from their hiatus, um, I really liked, I really, really, really liked uh, No Cities to Love. Um, I'm sort of going to take a back seat for a bit um, over the next few because um, the centre won't hold. Um, yeah, bit art poppy. I'm not really an art pop fan. I mean, obviously, it's late. It would be very lazy, but I'm going to go down that way. Um, so, is it just St. Vincent? Is it the producer impact no. again? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, their their decision to hook up with uh, St. Vincent. I say hook up. Uh, actually, I believe Carrie, Carrie, and Andy Clark actually did date date yeah. for a little while. Um, I mean, what but, a couple! Yes, wow, <laughs> power couple uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean. It, like with other albums we've seen with them in the past where they're like, let's, let's try something new. Let's, let's try what, what would it be like to, you know, to try, try a new sound. And I think that they were actually looking at a few different producers. Uh, but then once, uh, once St. Vincent uh, slash Annie came in, uh, they just realized, yeah, you know, we want to, we want to work with her for this whole album. And um it does sound very St. Vincent-ish. I mean, I like St. Vincent. Uh, and uh, But, you know, it is kind of a melding of different sounds, which I don't, I don't think it always works, but when it works, it's really good. I like it. And, and so, um, yeah, for fans, again, uh, they had to readjust yet again. So now we've got all these synthesizers. It has this kind of, you know, echoey uh, guitar sound that, you know, might associate with St. Vincent records. Um, and so there's a lot of that all over, um, all over this. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's again, you know, there are songs that are are more, uh, more personal as well. Um, I, I, at the time that this came out, I was, I was a little disappointed. I remember because I, you know, I liked both Slater Kenny and St. Vincent a lot, and I didn't feel like it quite meshed in the way that, you know, uh, previous uh sonic experiments had had worked out for them but over time i've 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 come to appreciate this more and more and you know songs like uh like hurry on home or can i go on i mean um uh you know there's there's some really there's really good songs and and they're also um still uh being political in their own way uh particularly with the song uh broken which apparently um was started as inspired by uh uh, them listening to uh, this Rihanna song, Stay, and saying, so, you know, could we make a song like that? And they, they end up doing a song, which I guess tonally is similar to that, but, but you know, the lyrics are about the Me Too movement. I mean, it's about, um, again, this was big in the U.S. I don't know how much news it made <laughs> overseas. No, it's big but, news here, too. Uh, when, no, no, I was going to say specifically the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, with this yeah, uh, yeah, Supreme yeah, Court yeah. justice, and um, Christine Blasey Ford coming forward with her testimony. And, um, you know, making a song about that, again, just sort of like the personal and the political coming together again. I didn't, I didn't, really, I didn't put two or two together. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was totally that time as well. Um, it's weird how you said, I mean, so I keep going back to this because I've, I've seemed to getting fixated with producers for a minute, but it's the last time I do this. Um, is it because Annie Clark has such a distinctive sound as an artist, as a performer, um, that when 
there's an album that is produced by her that has her sound, we have a frame of reference that is the producer as an artist and her own songs. Yeah. Whereas before with Dave Freeman, it's just, oh, there's a Dave Freeman sound, but it's not like Dave Freeman's in the Dave Freeman all-star jazz band and he's, and he's bringing that, that sound in, you know? Is that the issue here for some? That it's, you know, oh, it sounds like Annie Clark. And I know what Annie Clark sounds like, so I'm going to judge it by St. Vincent's songs. Cherie, I mean, am I just going crazy here or am I not letting this go? But <laughs> No, I don't know. I was actually quite reassured to hear Ben's opinions because I think I felt similarly that I'm a big St. Vincent fan. Like, yeah, absolutely love Annie. Um, and I was, when I first heard this record, I think I was a little bit disappointed. I mean, also a guitar nerd. Um so it's definitely more kind of streamlined. I think Pitchfork said it sounded like um, St. Vincent was just covering a range of Zeta Kinney songs, which is a bit harsh. Um, also, we've, we've gone ouch. down the Pitchfork route in previous episodes. I know we have, you're right. Can, I, they can fuck off. Yeah, I think, I think the other <laughs> thing is like Hurry On Home is a great return single. And so I was quite excited about that when I heard it, but I don't think it's very representative of the whole record. Like there's a lot more explored within the rest of the tracks that maybe Hurry On Home artfully skipped me from No Cities to Love into The Centre Won't Hold. And then I was there and suddenly there was a lot of synths happening. It was a bit like, wow. And then a ballad came along as well. Um, but I think uh, one of my faves is Love, actually, which was one of the later, oh. later singles. Uh, again, it just, I love the the chats about being like in an indie band and having no money and being broken on the road. I thought that was wonderful. And I love, as I think Ben said on previous uh, album, that there's so many little hints at other um, parts of their careers. So there's that lovely line about call the doctor, dig me out of this mess. Just a little, you know, hat tip to all the longstanding fans. But um, yeah, I think there are, there are some really interesting ideas and and it feels of a time I guess a bit like we were talking about with one beat because there's a lot of that stuff around reflecting on modern day routines and technology and that feels very digital witness era Annie Clark um but also relatable like start my day on a tiny screen never felt so goddamn alone um I just I I guess well a I miss the guitar and I'm gonna seamlessly link to Fliss b I miss Janet so, you know, I'm just, um, when I just, I guess it's interesting and I haven't read loads up about like when she decided to leave just after this record, but, um, I can maybe see why there might've been that tension with what they, what the final output was and where the drums were involved. So did she leave? When did she leave? Was it she, sort of? No, she, of the- she did write this. She did. I mean, she did play on this album. Okay. Um, well, from my first listen, I could definitely tell that it sounded not really like she was even in the room with the drums, um, which was so disappointing to hear. I do actually really love this album on other levels. Um, I kind of separate it. So, you know, since having to, you know, mourn the loss of Janet, I can listen to it now differently but at the time I was so sad because it really did sound like she was taken away from the music um that sounds really extreme but as she says herself in her statement um she felt like she was no longer a creative equal in the band and I think that 
runs through the record. Um, so yeah, super, super sad, but I mean, change isn't always bad. Um, people move on and, and you, they moved on with this album, obviously. Yeah. I mean, me me and Cherie saw them, um, live twice on this album and, uh, Obviously, we bought tickets before we knew Janet was leaving. We would have gone anyway, of course, but it was quite, um, I don't know, we just didn't know what to think stepping into those venues, did we? Because we'd seen them, we just wanted Janet there. Um, and oh, Dax to follow. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, they did, They and also just hearing them play these songs live because they're so produced there's lots of keys, there's drum machines, there's triggers all throughout it. How are they doing this? They've obviously hired they hired um, session musicians um, who were great in their own right as well, known as not session musicians, of course. Um, so they did a great job. It but. was just... But... <laughs> um, it, yeah. it does sound like there's that, that big but. I mean, even going back to what you said, Cherie, about um, Kim Deal. With the pixies, with pixies, I remember a friend of mine going, "Oh yeah, so I went to pixies. I went what the, the new lineup? And like, yeah, you, you can't tell. It's like exactly the same. Like, Is it? Because when I when I when I would go see pixies, I was like, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for gigantic. I wait. I wait for Kim to sing gigantic. Come on! I know. I feel awful. Uh, I feel like such a purist, but I just love. I love the breeders. So yeah. Um, there was an amazing story about one of the All Tomorrow's parties. I didn't go to that one, and um, was it was it it was it might have been Kim Deal who sometimes the bands would in, would say come tomorrow and we're going to do a different thing. So when Pavement played, if you turned up tomorrow and you were the first hundred, you went and had a, a stonemasonry class with the drummer of Pavement. I think Kim Deal did a knitting club. In the afternoon, in the bar, I'm sure. I, I'm, I'm sure it was knitting or knitting or crochet. It's like, come tomorrow, I'll be doing knitting and crochet in the bar, and everyone sort of. Cut in the That's room. literally Cherie's dream. <laughs> knitting with Kim Deal, it is. I mean, could there be no better present? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, as, as an album, it's it's all right. I really like it. I just want to say that here. Um, I think it's great, but also I do think it's a grower. And um, it took me a while. I think I think when it came out, it was like, oh, there's a new Sleet Kinney album. And I listened to it maybe once. I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. But never went back until we did this process. And I, I gave it a few times around this time. And I actually came to really, really like this album. It, it is obviously very different. But, you know, after they've done so much for so long, it's kind of interesting to hear them explore some other sounds. And uh, I think they do a fine job of it. Good. Well, let's move on to the, <laughs> well, to, to this month's. To the weirdest record. album title. <laughs> I mean, this is the closest we've ever recorded anything to, I mean, usually the artist died 30 years ago. I mean, <laughs> often often we're releasing stuff and the bands don't exist anymore. Um, there's an album out and it came out, what, two weeks ago? Something mm-hmm. like this? Um, Path yeah. of Wellness. It's all right. I mean, I've got the, it's all right. I mean, I listened to it twice. It's all yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's a grower though. I've yeah. I've listened to it. I listened to it maybe twice the first time. Was kind of like, oh, I don't know what to think about this. I wasn't ready for it, so I just mm. felt so unprepared to listen to Slitty Kinney again, even though I was obviously very excited. Um, the album title is so odd. To me, I just don't like it at all. Oh, I love it. You it's love such a piss, it. The title. It? Well, it's a yeah, piss take, it? isn't it? 
you know, I assume obviously, it's a piss take. Of course, but oh, I don't know. It's, it's exactly a piss take out of that. I think that cringy thing you're feeling. That's what I. That's how I take it, though. You know that kind of. I mean, that kind of path of wellness talk sounds awful, and I'm sure they. Yeah, but it's used so hard to make it your album knowingly. title. Yeah, like, I could. Yeah, I get the piss take thing, but to be like the title and you know represent your whole album, it's a weird title to me. I think um, that was odd. Um, but after you know about ten listens, I'm so into it. I'm really into this album, actually. Cool. And I'm was surprised, but yeah, it it goes on journeys, and I feel like. Tempo changes and dynamics are really good. I definitely prefer it to um, Sentiment Hold, actually. It's How are they working as a two? I mean, because I know, I mean, obviously, with my extensive research, I know that Violet Violet were a four, then a three, then a two. Um, how is it when a band gets stripped down uh, and creatively? I mean, particularly if you, were, if you are a big band and now you have the moment where somebody leaves you know, happens to a lot of bands and then it's moving on to the next stage. How is that creative process? I mean, is there a difference that the other persons are in the other people are in the room anymore? Is there a freedom? Is there a, an extra weight? Is there extra pressure? Sheree, what do you think? Well, it's their first self-produced record in over 25 years, I want to say, like a long old time. And obviously the first sort of outwardly album without Janet um so it it does feel like it's come right back in to say like this is you know the two of us it's just you and me I'm not going to sing it um and uh, <laughs> that would have been the trailer right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um I don't I think I'm with Fliss actually like initially I listened to it a few times favorite neighbor immediately stood out because it's so angular and like awkward and it's just my kind of needly guitar part and you know carries vocals really you know powerful delivery there but then more to that I've kind of listened again and there's quite a lot of prog in there which I really enjoyed the sort of tomorrow's grave late 70s Floyd I was getting with like the flange <laughs> guitar yeah. I was really really happy about that yeah, um, and then also as you say Nick like there's just so much humor so I, I mentioned sort of off air that I'd watched the mockumentary thing they made about putting the record together and they, and it's just hilarious as someone wrote in the comments it is the Portlandia Times Sleater Kinney sketch we all wanted to see um and I like that I like that they can take the piss out of themselves and they are just having fun as the two so they are interviewed by a clairvoyant in it and they talk about the future of the record and how it will be perceived um I really recommend it the other important thing I should share as well which just got me so buzzed was that the recent um performance they did of Path of Wellness I think it was um for one of the big American shows when they're in the skate park and it's the woman who founded She Shreds is playing lead on the song and she's Fabby. She's absolutely incredible. And they just casually mention that like, yes, that is Fabby from She Shreds on the guitar at the back there playing a St. Vincent guitar. So I just needed to say that for all the, for all the nerds, the string fans. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the, the song, I, I watched that performance too. Yeah. It was yeah. just on, um, Late Show with That's Stephen it. Colbert. And I yeah. think worry with you is the song that they Sorry. Play. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, but I mean, that's a, that's, that's, uh, also, uh, what their new 
touring lineup yeah. is going to look like too. I mean, those are the the players we're going to see, and it's very weird to see them with a bass player. I got to say. But okay, you know, it's like they got along just fine without a without a bassist all this time. Whoa, and now oh, gonna... is, is this when Ben breaks? It's like I'm fine with that change. I was fine with that change, but a bass player, I draw the line. <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing them. Uh, I, you know, believe it or not, I have never actually seen them in concert. Uh, I will finally get to see them now um, this summer. You know, promoting this album. I, I just. It, it, the stars never aligned for me to see them before. Although I did actually see uh, Janet uh, play with Yola Tango twice, uh, backing them up on uh, these Hanukkah shows that they do. Uh, one yeah. of them was dur- during the hiatus around like 2008. And then I also saw her for her first uh, show, you know, her first performance after sh- her accident. So she, you know, uh, 2019, she um she says she's leaving the band and then um she's going to tour with her other bands uh but then like a month later she gets into this car accident and, and oh, wow. she has to, has to have surgery and everything and so december 2019 uh she was like a special guest for this hanukkah show, show in new york with yola tango where you know it's like oh she's back it's amazing you know so big janet fan and and, and so yeah um i i mourn the loss of janet um, on this new album, uh, you know, the, the, the drummers that they're using are fine. There's, I guess, Angie Moylan, who was the, the touring drummer, uh, after, after Janet left and, and a couple of others and, and, and they do fine, but I do miss the, I don't know. I always sort of thought of it as this kind of sturdy tripod, the, the three of them together. And we started losing that on the center won't hold, even though apparently it was Janet's idea to, uh, have St. Vincent be the producer St. Vincent gets blamed for breaking up the band or, you know, whatever, like being the Yoko Ono of the, or whatever. It, it, but it was actually Janet's idea. But, you know, over the course of Center Road Hold, you know, it, things, things fell apart. And so it's interesting to see this new Janet list direction. And I'm still coming to terms with it. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's definitely growing on me. I, I don't know. Yeah, that tomorrow's grave. I don't know if I'm quite on board with that whole kind of 70s prog sound that they're exploring there. but. Um, but you know, there's, there's some, there's some great stuff on there. And I, I feel like they kind of learned lessons from center won't hold like all those synthesizers. We don't get synthesizers, but we do get lots of keyboards of various kinds that sound more natural, more organic. So whether it's, you know, the clavinet or whatever, uh, piano and organ and other things that they're bringing in. Um, and it's also interesting to hear them, uh, produce this themselves. Uh, there's also this, you know, audible original that they just released where they, they talk more about that process. And of course, this is all happening during the pandemic. And it turns out that in Portland, uh, Corin and Carrie were kind of uh, bubbling for, you know, for a while there when we had to be in our pandemic bubbles. And so, you know, it's, it's really just the two of them and their kind of mind meld. They talk about the sort of shared vernacular that they've had all along. And so, you know, they're like, well, let's just produce this and let's, you know, let's bring in, studio musicians as needed for these songs. And, uh, you know, I still feel like Janet is missed and I'm, and, you know, I enjoyed that audible original, but it's like, Janet is almost like written out of the band history at this point, which is disturbing to me. She barely gets mentioned in this yeah. audible thing where it's just about carrying corn, carrying corn. And so, you know, maybe it's still too fresh, like the, what the, what they all went through. Apparently they were going through like band therapy before Janet left. 
and maybe that's all still a bit too fresh or they don't want, you know, they don't want to talk about that uh, whole breakup with Janet so much, but I do miss her. Who knows? You know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Janet could come back at some point. I wouldn't <gasps> put it past the band. With Graham enough Cox time, back it to could blur. happen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, people go, people do tend to go back at some point. Um, I, I, it's interesting. I've, we've talked a lot about Janet and how great Janet was, and you know, as a, and how great they are, uh, Korean and Kari as a front two, and the vocals and the guitars together. Are they held up musically? As you know, people will go, "Ah, oh, Saint Vincent, she's an amazing guitarist," or like Marnie Stern was an amazing guitarist. Do people hold up Salita Kinney in the same way, or is it as a band they rock? Is there a tech? Are they given a technical kudos? I guess by anybody. I mean, I don't know. Well, Janet, I think certainly is. But uh, I mean, mm. you know, Fliska talked to this. But I mean, she's sort of revered. I I think among uh, you know people who appreciate that kind of drumming, absolutely right. Oh my god, completely! <laughs> like I, yeah, it's so inspirational. But on on a on a guitar level, like Shez, you, um, Cherie, sorry, you, <laughs> you were so inspired by Carrie. Also, just the, yeah, the mere sound of all that distortion um, breaking up with the cleaner stuff, but also her moves and everything, just how she went about the whole. Yeah, and also thing. the baritone stuff, which I guess we haven't really yeah. like, as um, Ben was saying, with the bass now being a thing. Um, that because. Uh, you talked to you and about yeah. Violet Violet kind of, you know, going down to its bare bones. And that was largely propelled by an octave pedal. And I think that was another thing that we loved about them and, and that I love about Nick Zinner and people like that, that it's just, you've got this huge sound, but it's just the two of you and it's immense. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It, that is a really good question. It's really interesting because I don't know if I've seen that many guitar. I should start pitching some so I can finally meet Harry. Um, because she should be in there. But I would say, agree that Janet has definitely got that pedestal. Um, just a small humble brag that I did interview her for a magazine many moons ago. And she was in the pioneer slot. Um, and I went to chat to her before a quasi gig. And yeah, like it, as Ben has said, like she's played with so many bands on that scene as well, just like popping up with the shins. I think she's a good one to talk to because you can start to place her and people are like, oh, she played with that band and that band. And she just, yeah. Is so it's six degrees. Like, it's not Kevin Bacon anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is probably a perfect time to wrap up. Um, we have spent the last two episodes going through 20, 20 30 years? Or, no, 25 so, years? 25. More uh, of Slater Kinney. I have managed to say Slater, not Slater, approximately 95% of the time. So I'm quite happy, but I'm quite happy with that. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you ever so much for everyone. To coming on um there'll be links in all the descriptions to all the different things um if you like us just tell one person i mean that's all i'm going to say nick's going to talk about other things with patrons right now finish it and tell one person about this podcast i mean obviously don't all tell the same person because that sort of defeats the point of this but i'm hoping you all know different people um so it's been fantastic having the three of you back sheree it's been great always a pleasure um fliss be great i'm just going to say it's been great to everybody fliss it's been great it's been great <laughs> ben, it's been great <laughs> it indeed has been great i really enjoyed it nick it's been great yeah no oh. seriously 
<laughs> so cash. Pretty good about this pair of episodes. What a brilliant crew. Nightingale's drummer and one half of Violet Violet, Fliss Kitson, and the other half of said band, Sharia Moore, nowadays found rewriting the pantheons of rock, so they pay heed to all the incredible women out there making music. And as if that weren't enough, we also had the learned Ben Zimmer on hand with his always interesting insights. Thanks also to my affable co-host Ewan, and to Jonathan Fisher for our glorious theme tune. Just one last bit of admin. We're a completely independent show and we love doing it, but we really need your help if we're to keep going. That help can take the form of telling other people about the show, sharing it on social media, like, subscribes and whatever. But if you can spare a few euros, we also have a Patreon, where, in exchange for very little cash, we're offering bonus episodes and merch. That's at patreon.com slash tempfans. Any support at all would be so well received. And whether you do that or not, we'll be back next week with another amazing artist. But until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and there's nothing more frightening, nothing more obscene, than a well-worn body demanding to be seen. <laughs>